daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Now let's pause. Some of you might be thinking, wait a minute. He adopted me. I thought that I've always been a child of God. I mean, wasn't I created by him? And I would say, yes, it's true we were created by him in his image to be his image bearers, his ambassadors in in caring for and stewarding his creation. But it is not true that we were born his sons and daughters in his family. And that's because... When God created us, he endowed us with free will and he knew what would happen with our free will. He knew that we would take that free will and use it in many cases to rebel against him and run our own way. But he chose to give us free will. And we talked about this a little bit last week. He chose to give us free will because he recognized that without that, we cannot have a genuine relationship with him any more than my computer can have a genuine relationship with me. It might tell me it loves me, But it doesn't have the option to choose otherwise. Therefore, it is simply fulfilling its programming. And in the same way, he says, I want you to choose to be in relationship with me. And therefore, I have to give you the option to choose not to. And God knew what would happen. He knew that our most ancient ancestors and we, our hearts would drift. And so he decided before he ever spoke the heavens and earth into place... And before he ever breathed his divine breath into our lungs, he decided to take matters into his own hands. And this is where the whole predestined to adoption comes in. God chose before the world began to redeem mankind from our own wandering. It was his choice, not because we earned it, not because we deserved it, not because we were good enough or did enough good things before we were even born. He made that determination and he knew he would send Jesus. And that is where this idea of predestination or predetermination comes. God chose it of his own free will in Christ. And when we place our faith in Jesus, everything that God chose to give us and lavish upon us is given to us in and through him. And that's where we read this as as 21st century human beings. In a very individualistic culture, we read it as God picked you, and he picked you, and he picked you, and he picked you. He picked me, but he didn't pick that person or that person or that person, which makes him seem very, very arbitrary. And in reality, when we understand that our Father God loved his image bearers, his creation, his his sons and daughters so much that he was unwilling to allow sin to get the final word. He was unwilling to allow the shackles of shame and guilt to to keep us separated from him and enslaved. And so he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He sent Jesus to live as an example for us and then ultimately to give his life for us, to pay the penalty so that we could be reconciled to him. And that's the gospel message. That's the good news. And it is good news. And and in case you wonder, well, you know, was it really his choice? Let's read this again. In love, not because he was cajoled, not because we'd done enough good things. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. He wanted to do it. We didn't convince him he should do it. It was his choice. Now, Let's lean into adoption for a moment. 
Because the truth of the matter is, I think we all have an idea of what adoption means. But we're again, we're looking at it through a 21st century lens. Because when we talk about adoption today, we look at the reasons for which people adopt children today. And that's the reality is when we do adoption today, it's normally children. And we adopt them into our family in order to provide and protect for that child as they are slowly unfolded into an adult. And so it's more for caring and raising up of those children to protect them from being abandoned, from being alone, from being, um, you know, kind of walking through this world by themselves. That's why we tend to adopt people. But remember, Paul was not a 21st century author writing to people living in the 21st century. Although this passage speaks to us today in the 21st century, it was first and foremost to to men and women living in the Greco-Roman culture of the early first century. And so when he talks about adoption, he's not talking about an American idea of adoption. He's talking about the the first century Greco-Roman idea of adoption. So let me briefly paint a picture for you of, of what that type of adoption looked like. It's slightly different. At least the focus is different than why we adopt. Again, we tend to adopt children to protect them. In the, in the first century, they didn't do that for the most part. In the first century, they were more focused on, I want our family name to continue and I want to make sure that our estate is passed on to somebody who will carry forward our values and our family. But when you didn't have a male heir who would carry on the family name and who would inherit everything, you were at a loss. What are we going to do? Because now somebody else, when I, when we die, somebody else is going to take our stuff and somebody else, their name, their family name will carry on. And when you didn't have a male heir, what you would do is you would say, you know what? This person who may have been a slave in your household or may have been a a friend or somebody that you have seen grow up and you go, this is a person whose character kind of reflects ours. Somebody we trust, somebody we would want to carry on our family name. They would say, we're going to adopt you into our family. It was a very public ceremony in which the father would stand up and say, today I choose this individual to be my son. And then that individual would have the choice. They would have to publicly declare one way or the other, yes, I accept the invitation to be your son or your daughter. When that happened, a few things happened to the person who was adopted. Let's throw the first one up on on the screen. When you were adopted into somebody's family, by law, the old life of the adopted person was completely wiped out. For instance, all your debts that you had accumulated over the course of your life were canceled. Nobody could collect from you anymore. In the eyes of the law, this person was viewed as a brand new person entering into a new life and their past had no bearing upon their future. So you had been born a slave, but once you were adopted, you were no longer a slave. You no longer had debt to pay off because all of those things, the old person was gone. You were a brand new person as a part of the family. Number two, the adopted person gained all the rights of a legitimate child in his or her new family. By law, this person got a new family. So you could call that person who you may have called master before, you could now call that person father or dad. Thirdly, The adopted person also became an heir to the family estate. Even if other children were born afterwards, it did not affect their right 
as co-heirs. In other words, once you were part of the family, you were going to receive the inheritance of the family, part of the estate. And even if other children were born after you, that doesn't mean that you would lose that right. You became a co-heir even with those naturally born children. Do you see why this metaphor that Paul uses of adoption is such a powerful one for who we are in Christ. Because in Christ, when we are adopted into God's family, the old self with its giant sin debt is wiped out. We become brand new men and women in Christ. The old has gone. The new has come. Secondly, because we have been adopted into God's family, we no longer need to look at him simply as Lord and Savior, although that's who he is. We no longer need to look at him simply as creator and sustainer of the world, although that's who he is. We can now call him Father, or as Jesus says in Romans 8, or Jesus used this term, Abba, Daddy. It is the single most intimate term or the single most intimate name of God found anywhere in Scripture. And once we have been adopted into his family, we have just as much right as Jesus to call God our daddy. Thirdly, because we have been adopted into the family, we stand to inherit all that God intended for us. And well, what, what exactly are we talking about in terms of that? Everything that God intended for humanity from Adam and Eve to have. Namely, to be the stewards of his creation, caring and co-laboring with him in the care and cultivation of his creation. In relationship with him, not by ourselves. That's what he intended. In other words, the greatest thing that we get to inherit is eternal life in relationship with our Father God. Co-laboring alongside of Him. I got news for you. Eternal life does not mean that we sit in, on, in heaven on clouds with harps simply playing all day long. That's not what we look forward to. We get to co-labor alongside of Him, but that is a totally another conversation. But ultimately, we get to inherit eternal life in relationship with our Creator, our Sustainer, and our Father. And our brother, God's only begotten, meaning only naturally born son. Although he wasn't born, he's partly, he is God in human flesh. He took on flesh, but he is the only one that can rightfully say, I've always been part of the family. We are adopted and that's what it means that he's the only begotten. And the Holy Spirit. And this is the best part. Go down to verse 13 for a moment. Paul says this, you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed, you were marked in him with the, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until all of those who are God's possession are redeemed. The Holy Spirit is the installment payment, the first fruits of our inheritance. Because what is our inheritance if it's not God himself in relationship with him? But we don't have to wait until we die to get our hands on our inheritance. Because from the moment we say, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I accept that gift. I want to be found in you. I want to be part of your body. I want you to have your way with me. Be not only my savior, but my Lord. In that moment, God takes his spirit 
The same spirit that empowered Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, and he implants that his spirit in our hearts. Suddenly, we are no longer trying to navigate this world on our own. Suddenly, the God of the universe resides in our hearts, shaping, molding, helping us to become a better reflection of our Father. Does that make sense? Because that's what's happened. That is the good news that Paul is just celebrating in this prayer of praise at the beginning of his letter to the Ephesians. That's what it means to be adopted. And yet, that's not all that adoption holds for us. Because if we lean in just a little further, we're going to see that there's one more character trait of first century adoption that is radically important for us to get. But before I tell you what it is, let me step back for just a moment and tell you a little bit about what it was like growing up in the first century. A child's place in the first century was tenuous at best. You were not secure. Because children could be disowned at any time if their parents were displeased with them. In fact, when a child was born into a Greco-Roman family, and Greco-Roman simply means if you were like in Greece or in Rome, you know, wherever you happen to be in this, in this Gentile land, if you were born into a family, what would happen is the nursemaid would take you and lay you at the feet of the, 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 the family, the man of the house. Lay you at the feet of the man that you would call father. And he would look down at this child, who at this point is just seconds old. And if the father stooped and picked up his child, then that child was recognized as his son or his daughter. But if the father turned his back on his child, then that baby was picked up, carried outside of the family estate and left on the street, exposed. And in fact, they called it exposing a child because you were exposing him to the elements. And the, the thought was, this is not my child, throw him out, and they will die from exposure. Although oftentimes those children, and this is really kind of twisted, those children were often picked up by slave drivers who they found that it was cheaper to raise children into adults for slavery than to buy somebody into slavery. Young girls, sometimes boys, were picked up by pimps who would then raise them for prostitution. It was a sick, twisted time. And even children who were picked up by the father as they grew up, if they did something to displease the father, I think of the child in in the story of the prodigal son who comes to his dad and says, Dad, I wish you were dead because I want my inheritance. That father had the right in that moment to disown his son completely and say, guess what? You're not getting a penny because you're no longer my son. Life as a child in the first century was tenuous at best. But this is what brings us now to the point about adoption. Because although you could be disowned as a naturally born child, an adopted child by law could never be unadopted. In other words... If you had been adopted, you were completely and utterly secure in your new identity as a child of that family. And in the same way, 
When Paul celebrates this idea that we have been adopted, we can celebrate the fact that in Christ, we are completely and utterly secure in our Father's love, that nothing, nothing can separate us from His love. And in fact, that idea, because Paul kind of takes a similar approach in Romans chapter 8. He looks at a very similar... And at the end of Romans chapter 8, this is his declaration of praise for how secure we are in the Father's love. Can we throw that up there? Oh, I totally skipped that part. Keep going. That was a really good point you missed. Sorry about that. (laughs) Romans chapter 8, this is what he said. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that he has revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. What I hope you hear this morning is that if you are a son or daughter of God, you are secure. You can stop striving. You can stop trying to prove your worth. And every time you stumble in sin, you don't have to be like afraid that God's going to suddenly disown you. You didn't do anything to earn your right to be his child. You can rest in his love and instead you can allow him through his spirit to allow your, you to become a better reflection. You can just rest in his grace and therefore begin to live as his son or his daughter. Not because you have to prove it, but because out of gratitude, you just want to, you just want to be a reflection of his heart. Now, it's one thing to say that we're secure. It's another thing to live as if we are secure because I, let's be honest. Many of us go through life feeling pretty insecure in our relationship with God. I remember uh, when my friends Brandy and Jesse Gibbs adopted their son Sammy from Uganda. When they got him, Sammy was about almost three years old. He had lived his entire life up to that point, bouncing from orphanage to group home to back to orphanage to, you know, wherever. He was just kind of in the Ugandan system. And when they finally adopted him, I was at the airport when they brought him home and we celebrated and here was this little boy just kind of like overwhelmed. He didn't realize that he was coming home for the very first time. But for Sammy, that transition from orphan to son of Brandy and Jesse and as a a, a child of the Gibbs, as a part of the Gibbs family was not smooth because for him, there was a tremendous amount of insecurity that had been birthed out of his early life. He used to, at dinner time, he would sneak bread rolls and stick them in his pocket. And then he would hide them around the house on the off chance that the food stopped coming. And this was something that he had learned in an orphanage. You, you never knew when the next meal would be and you never knew whether there would be enough. So while it's there, get it while the getting's good. How many of us walk through our lives like that and particularly in our relationship with God? Basically, I'm going to celebrate now, but the moment you stumble, there's this part of you that just goes, I can't rest in his love because I don't feel worthy of his love. And and let's just be honest, we're not worthy of it, which is makes his grace so wonderfully good 
That's what's so amazing about grace is that we don't deserve it, and yet he lavishes it upon us anyway. Far too many of us are like Sammy. We approach our relationship with God as if the shoe might drop. And a a lot of that is born out of our families of origin. If you grew up in a family in which you were loved unconditionally, and you were told that time and again, then this idea that you're a son or daughter of God might not be that difficult for you to rest in. You might not have a problem with this. But if you grew up in a family where your parents' approval was dependent upon your performance, where it felt like their praise, their joy, was dependent upon how well you did or whether you obeyed or whether they were proud of you, then you might struggle in your relationship with God to rest fully in his love. And that was true for Sammy because let's be honest, up to that point in his life, every single person that came into his life disappeared. And so while he loved being a part of their family, he loved being a Gibbs, he couldn't rest in it. He was just waiting for them to leave or for him to be shipped out to the next place. But here's the thing. Sammy's security was not dependent upon his worthiness, had very little to do with him. It had everything to do with his parents' commitment, their covenant to raise him as their son. I love this quote from Lee Strobel. Can we throw that up on the board? He says, faith is only as good as the one in whom it's invested. Faith is only as good as the one in whom it's invested. A lot of us have placed our faith in people who let us down. Maybe it was a relationship you were in. Maybe it was a parent who should have been there but disappeared or didn't even know how to be a parent. Maybe it was a spouse that you opened yourself up and made yourself vulnerable to and they stomped all over your heart and you find yourself now going, I will never trust another man. I will never trust another woman the way I used to. I was so naive. And those kind of wounds cannot help but translate into our relationship with our Father God, particularly if those wounds were inflicted by a person that had the title Father in your life. But as we look at Sammy's life, again, I will reiterate, his standing as a Gibbs was not dependent upon his performance. It was completely dependent upon his parents' faithfulness to raise him as their son and to embrace him as their son, to treat him as a full-fledged member of their family as he was by law. And in the same way, our relationship with God has far less to do with our faithfulness than it does with his faithfulness. Our God is infinitely more faithful than we are. And guess what? We're going to stumble. We're going to fall short. We're going to mess up. We're going to have our Peter moments where we disown him, intentionally or unintentionally. There are going to be moments where we don't act like a very mature member of his family. That does not mean that we cease to be part of his family in that moment. Because he has adopted us as his children, and he is faithful, and in his love we are secure. One last thought. On the day that... Sammy became a member of the Gibbs family. He didn't just get a new mom and dad. 
He also got a new, a new sibling named Adelaide. And in the same way, when we are adopted into God's family, we get a whole set of, we get a brand new family, including a whole bunch of brothers and sisters. Every single man, woman, and child who has ever placed their faith in Jesus Christ from the beginning of time until now is our spiritual sibling. Which means that we are family. And it doesn't matter what your culture, it doesn't matter what your ethnic background, it doesn't matter uh, what your education level, it doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account, if you even have a bank account, it doesn't matter what your zip code is or whether it is in flux one day to the next. Every single one of us is family. Now, that's not to say we always act like family, right? A lot of times, we are just as dysfunctional as any other family out there. Do you know that there are over 50 church communities that meet around Costa Mesa? I was just sitting with Ian um, on Thursday, and we were looking over the list of churches in Costa Mesa. There's over 50 church communities that meet in Costa Mesa. But here's what I know. There's only one church in Costa Mesa. There's only one church on this planet. Jesus Christ is the head of that church. We are all part of that church. Which means that we're not in competition with one another. And yet sometimes we act like we are. Sometimes we compete with our sister and brother churches. To see if we can have the best footprint, that we can have the best, uh, you know, that people think the highest of us. Sometimes we go so far as to celebrate when one of our sibling churches suffers. Because we feel pretty good about ourselves all of a sudden. No, well, we didn't fall into that. Sometimes we go out of our way to try to steal sheep from other pastures in order to swell our ranks so we can fill every single seat So we can feel better about ourselves as opposed to recognizing that there are thousands of men and women who are created in God's image who are dying every day apart from him. And we're focused on the ones that already know him rather than going after and loving the ones who don't. Sometimes we get into arguments on social media about very minor theological issues that are really family arguments rather than focusing on our fo- on the one thing that we can all agree in the gospel message that Jesus Christ died so that we can live so that we who are sinners we who are prodigals who have wandered far from home can come home and that's the good news not because we earned it Not because we've done something to deserve it. Not because we're just better people than the others. Not because there's something uniquely redeeming about our character. But because our Father God is good. Our Father God is loving. And our Father God is very patient. i got to tell you, I'm really, really grateful that the church in Costa Mesa is starting to get this. And it's due in large part to, to Ian and you know, John and, and, and Bill and others in Trellis who are striving to minister throughout our community. Some of you guys got a chance to go to uh, the One Voice Night of Worship a couple Thursday nights ago. I think we have a picture from it. 
we had five different church worship bands on the same stage as one band. We had hundreds of Christ followers from very different walks of life, from very different church communities, very different worship styles, all worshiping together, all celebrating God together, all praying for our city and for one another together. And it was beautiful. We're going to do more of those because it was the perfect picture of what God is doing to unite and knit us together. But it's not the only thing that he's doing in our city. Just yesterday, I was over at the crossing, which is just right across uh, the 55 freeway. And at the crossing, there were a ton of my homeless brothers and sisters from all over the city and even beyond the city who come every Saturday because they get fed. There's a breakfast served every Saturday morning. They have a place that they can put their belongings. Imagine taking everything that you hold dear and dragging it behind you in a cart or carrying in a backpack on your back. And you can never let it out of your sight. But now imagine for a moment that you have a place that you can go and set it where you know there are trustworthy people who will watch over it for you. Imagine the freedom you have in that moment to then take care of some of your other needs, such as taking a shower. They have mobile laundry units on Saturday mornings where they can wash their bodies. They have mobile, I'm sorry, mobile shower units where they can wash their bodies and mobile laundry units where they can wash their clothes. And they're also... People like John Began, who are experts on how to care for and begin to take steps to get out of just the circle of just being on the street and just getting a little bit of money to get through the next day and actually begin, beginning to get back to holding a job and having a ho- place that you can call home, that you can leave your things. Beautiful picture of the body of Christ. But here's the best part. All that happening there, it's hosted by the crossing, but it is not run by the crossing. It is not a ministry of the crossing. It's a ministry of the church in Costa Mesa. It's undergirded by and held together by the trellis team. But ultimately, it's volunteers from all of the church coming together every Saturday going, we're in. Because we love our brothers and sisters and we want to care for their needs. Just as God is caring for ours. Beautiful picture. And there's tons of things like that. In fact, if you have your bulletin, on the back side of your bulletin is a list of different ways that you can get involved, many of them through Trellis, to address the three biggest issues that we currently see in our city that we are trying to get a handle on. One of them would be homelessness. There's some really good things like the check-in center and other things that you can get involved in. One of them would be education. We have recognized that if children can read at a third grade level by the third grade, it will, it will set a trajectory for success educationally and socially in life. But if children are not able to read at a third grade level, we find that the trajectory is quite often into jail and other things like that. And so we are making a point of getting every single child in the Newport Mesa Unified School District reading at a third grade reading level by the time they get to third grade. And every single school in our district has been adopted and has people working in it. So if you want to get involved there, great. And then there's, there are conversations, well, how do we care for our brothers and sisters who are some of them here illegally, others who have immigrated totally, um, you, you know, they're here and the government knows they're here and they're working through the system to become citizens of the United States. And yet they come from a very different culture. And how do we begin to integrate 
So there are conversations happening there. Those are the three biggest things that we have recognized in our city that we want to deal with. And we're addressing them. And so if you, who are a son, you who are a daughter of God, who are loved by him, want to get more involved in caring for the least and the lost, caring for those who have some pretty big hurdles that we may not have had in front of us, I encourage you to check that out. There's some contact information there. But God is good. And I celebrate what he's doing. And this morning, as I invite the worship team forward, we were thinking, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to the declaration that Paul points us to that we have been adopted, not because we deserve it, not because we're good enough, not because we're better than someone else, but we have been adopted as his sons and daughters because he loves us. And we're brand new people. The old is gone. The new has come. We can call him our daddy, our father, because he is our father. And we have eternity with him that we get to look forward to. In fact, we get to begin living out our inheritance right now with the Holy Spirit's enablement. And we are completely and utterly secure in that position. How do we respond to that as a body of Christ, as a family of God? The best way I can think of is through taking communion. And I'm going to invite um, our elder couples, you know who you are, to come forward and grab your spots. Because communion is one of those things that we do in the church that has a tremendous amount of meaning. Jesus recognized that he he wasn't going to walk with us forever. And so he looked at his disciples and says, hey guys, I'm going to do something during this meal that carries some weight. Careful there. Freestyle walking. I'm going to do something that carries, I'm going to I love that Jesus is, our God is a God of props. A lot of times he recognizes we need tangible things to remind us of things that otherwise could be far more intellectual. So he says, rather than simply telling you what I'm going to do, I'm going to show you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you something to remind yourself because you're a forgetful people. I'm going to remind you of what I'm about to do for you. So he took a piece of bread and he said, this bread symbolizes my body that I'm going to give for you. And then he took a cup of wine that they would drink. And he said, this, this wine represents my blood that I'm about to pour out for you. And when you take this, when you share in this meal, you do it together. Because in me, you are one. Together we're family in him. And so I'm going to invite those of you in just a moment who have accepted the gift of grace that Jesus paid for us on the cross and have become part of this family, I'm going to invite you to come forward in just a moment because I recognize that there are some of you in here this morning who at this point have not yet taken hold of the gift that Jesus paid everything to take hold of for you. And maybe you feel like, I don't deserve that. I haven't done anything. It's like, guess what? None of us do. The best part about grace is that it starts from a very even footing. None of us deserve it. Therefore, all of us are given tremendous amounts of grace. What a gift. If if you had earned it, it wouldn't be a gift. It would be your payment. But it's a gift. And for those of you who have yet to take hold of it, let me simply say, just... Your father loves you more than you could ever possibly know. Jesus told the story of that prodigal son who told his dad, I wish I could have my inheritance now. I wish you were dead because I want to live it up now. And that father who represented God in that story 
rather than disowning his son, gave him exactly what his son wanted, knowing full well that it probably wouldn't work out the way his son thought it would. And sure enough, he goes off and he lives life as he thought he should, living it up. He had tons of fair weather friends in the moment. But soon enough, his income dries up, his inheritance runs out, and he finds himself knee-deep in the muck of his mistakes, covered in the grime of his greed and his short-sightedness, ashamed of how far he'd fallen. And he goes, man, there are, there are servants in my father's household who live better than I'm living. What on earth am I doing here? And I know I don't deserve to be called the son of my dad, but maybe I can go back and be a servant in his home. And so he makes that long walk home. And here's the part that Jesus was really emphasizing in this story. He says, the father was not just sitting, enjoying life. The father was not, had not just moved on. The father was standing on the porch of his home, scanning the horizon, looking for his boy who had wandered far from home. And when he saw his son on the horizon, rather than standing there with his arms crossed and angry, just waiting to lay into his boy for his rebelliousness, Jesus said that that father, who again represents our father God in the story, pulled up his robes in a most undignified fashion and ran as fast as he could down the avenue until he found his boy. And when he got to his boy, he threw his arms around his son and he begins to weep and say, my son is home. My son is home. And then he calls over a servant and says, quick, kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party and get this guy a robe. He needs it. And get him some new sandals and get him a ring for his finger because this son who was lost is home. And that's how your father feels about you. So stop thinking you need to do something to earn it. Stop thinking that you don't deserve it because you don't, but that's not the point. And just come home. And all it takes is the same thing that it takes to accept a gift. The recognition that maybe, if you, don't, maybe you don't deserve it, but it is being given freely. So accept it freely and say thank you. And it, and it starts as something as simple as a, an acknowledgement. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. And God, thank you for wanting to do life with me. I accept it. I want to come be part of the family. Give me the Holy Spirit. Because I need you in me. I need you to clean house. Jesus, I don't only want you to be my Savior. I want you to be my Lord. So show me what it means to be in you. There's nothing magical about those words. It is simply an acknowledgement. And every time I pray it, it's different words, okay? So don't think it's some magical incantation. But it's that simple to begin a lifelong journey of following Jesus Christ as your Lord. And to become part of this family. And so, my brothers and my sisters... I invite you to come forward. Let's go across the aisles on the outside and then they have some in the back. Let's grab the communion elements and then together as a family, we will take communion in a few moments. Why don't you come forward?